passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again. Uh, This morning, we're continuing our series on the book of 1 Timothy. We are uh, still in chapter 1. We have been here for a couple of weeks just looking at the purpose of 1 Timothy, why we're studying this as a church, as well as last week, just looking at some of the false teaching that Timothy was dealing with. This morning, we're going to continue looking at a passage that is probably one of the most influential passages in all of church history. If you look at all of church history, you, you can see just the importance of this passage in life after life after life. Paul just got done defending the church or calling Timothy to defend the church against false teaching. And now he mentions the word gospel. He says in verse 11 that I have been entrusted with the gospel. And from that moment, he goes forward and he says, you know what? Let me just tell you about this gospel and what God has done for me. And he begins to share his own personal experience of the gospel. The words of this passage are so powerful, they're so moving, that you can almost see the tears that have stained the pages of the original writing that Paul is giving to Timothy as he's remembering what God has saved him from. This passage gives us an incredible glimpse of Paul's soul as he's being extremely vulnerable of what God has done for him. And this passage is a great, immeasurably valuable gift to the church. It is amazing that God has allowed these words to be recorded and passed down to us because as we see Paul's own gratitude for the gospel, it is our hope and our prayer as a church that we can see ourselves in Paul. That even as Paul is grateful for what God has done for him, that we also should respond with gratitude for what God has done for us. As I mentioned, this is true throughout church history. In the early 1500s, there was a man named Thomas Bilney. And he, he came across this passage, this verse, in, in chapter 1, verse 15. This beautiful verse. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Thomas Bilney, as he read this passage, had spent years of his life trying to honor God, to seek God, to earn salvation through the Catholic Church. And he came across this passage and he soon realized that God came to save him, not to show him how he could be saved by his own works. And he began to share this good news, this gospel, this trustworthy saying with everyone around him. And 10 short years later, he was killed by the church because of the gospel. 150 years later, John Bunyan experienced a similar trial. Many of us are familiar with John Bunyan. He is the writer of The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, an allegory of the Christian's own journey in faith. As he read this passage, he actually wrote his own, or titled his own autobiography after it, calling his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He wrote his autobiography after spending 12 years in prison for refusing to recant his commitment to the gospel that Jesus alone saves. And then it was in the late 1700s, early 1800s, that the famous hymn writer John Newton wrote these words at the end of his life. 
He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. That's what this morning is about. That is what this morning is about. It's about the gospel. It's about Paul's testimony that he was a great sinner and yet Christ was a great savior. And the thing, the same thing is true for us today. Although we may be great sinners, we have a great Savior. As we approach 1 Timothy chapter 1 and we look at Paul's powerful testimony, I think this is the one thing that God wants us to take from uh, this morning. The one thing that God wants to impress upon us is this. If God can save you, he can save anyone. If God can save you, he can save anyone. Paul is looking back at his life and he concludes that his life is a testament to the grace of God. If God can save Paul after all of the evil of his past, then God can save anyone. And when I look at my own life, when I see the ways that I've attempted to exalt myself in the past, the ways I've tried to earn my own salvation, the idols I've set up in my thoughts and my hearts, I realize if God can save me, He can save anyone. The last two weeks, we've looked at testimonies or qualities, rather, of the church. And this morning, we're going to do look at just one more quality. In fact, the heart of the idea of church, and that is the message of salvation. The importance of the gospel for us this morning. What I want to do is we're just going to go through this passage slowly. We're going to look at just a few verses as a time to see why the gospel is the bedrock, not just to our identity as Christians, but also our identity as a church this morning. As we approach God's word, let's pray once more. God, as we approach your word, we ask that you would envelop us in your grace. Father, even as we study here in a moment, we we rejoice at the thought that the notion that your grace is unending. That it is abounding, it is overflowing for people who constantly fail you, turn their backs upon you, dishonor you with their lives. In short, that this gospel is for people like us. God, we ask that as we study this word, you would spark a joy in our hearts for the glory of your gospel. The glory of your salvation that you don't just offer to us, but that you offer to all peoples. Father, I'm not naive enough to think that everyone here this morning knows you. And so as we explore your gospel, as we explore your offer of salvation, I pray that you would use your word to spur those who do not know you to respond to your grace. And for those of us who do know you, who have received the offer of salvation, I pray that you would use your word to spur us on to knowing and loving you. Bless our time this morning, God. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a relatively short passage, uh, so would you stand as we read God's word? We're just going to read verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1. Please hear these words. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were, in, those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. We'll read the rest of this passage here in a few moments. Now, as we look at this passage, as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, we see Paul's personal testimony. It's all about the gospel. And what we want to to zero in on or, or hone in on this morning are six truths of the gospel. These truths are beautiful. They are glorious. They are all about us and our relationship with God. So let's take a look, just going through these verse by verse, looking at these truths of the gospel. The first one is found in verse 12, and it is this. The gospel leads to gratitude. The gospel leads to gratitude. Paul, as I mentioned earlier, mentions the gospel in verse 11, and he just has to stop what he's saying. He stops talking about false teaching, and he just has to get on his knees and worship God because of the gospel. Here, verse 12, once more, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Notice what Paul thanks God for. He thanks God for what he has done for him. But what's significant is the, is the specifics of what Paul prays for as he's thanking Jesus. He doesn't just say, thank you, God, for saving me. That's certainly implied here, but he doesn't just say, thank you, God, for salvation. There's three specific things that Paul thanks God for. He doesn't just thank God for the one-time gift of salvation, but God's continuing presence and continuing work in his life. The first thing he thanks God for is this. At the cross, we are equipped. Notice how he begins. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. Paul is grateful that God has equipped him, given him the strength, empowered him for service to God. He has empowered him to follow God and serve him each and every day. The question is, what about you? What about you? Do you realize that salvation is not just a one-time gift, but is a continual and constant strengthening through the Spirit of God? Do you realize that at the cross, Jesus did not just pay for your sins, past, present, and future, but he also, through union with him, gave you the ability to honor God in every area of your life. At the cross, we are equipped We are empowered for service in God's name. We have been strengthened for every trial, every temptation, and every suffering. At the cross, we are equipped. Second, we see this. At the cross, we are justified. Paul continues his prayer in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Paul looks at his life almost as if it's playing out in a courtroom. He says that God is standing, waiting to judge him, and he stands on trial, and charge after charge against Paul is listed. Paul is guilty of blasphemy against God. Paul is guilty for persecuting the church. Paul is guilty for breathing out murderous threats against Christians. The list goes on and on, and Paul has no answer for the charges that are directed at him. He has no defense for the charges listed for his name. Guilt begins to wash over him. 
He begins to drown in the shame of what he has done. He can smell the brimstone of his own judgment just at the door. There is no hope for someone like Paul until we see the cross. It is at the cross that God declares otherwise. Paul was immeasurably unfaithful to God. And yet God remained faithful to him. God remained faithful to him. And because of that, at the cross, Paul himself was declared faithful. The grace that is given to Paul, the grace that is given to each and every one of us, is not just something that covers over our past sins, but it covers over our present sins and our future sins as well. We are able to be faithful to God because of the faith, the faithfulness of Christ and our faith in him. At the cross, we are justified. Notice the final thing that Paul gives gratitude to God for. It's this. At the cross, we are called. He finishes his thanksgiving with this. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. He looks at his calling as an apostle as the greatest gift that God has ever given him. For Paul, he he doesn't see service as something that just good Christians do. He doesn't just see service as an obligation, but instead as an overflow of a grateful heart for what God has done for him. The question is, what about you? Do you see your calling to serve God as an obligation or as a joy? Your calling to serve God as a mother or a father, a burden or joy, no matter how difficult the seasons, no matter how thankless the nights. Do you see your calling to serve God as a teacher as something just to pay the bills or as a way of honoring God tangibly in the school district? We can have this mindset when it comes to the church that I will do it. I will serve because I'm supposed to. Or perhaps I will do it because no one else will. Do we serve God out of gratitude? Because at the cross, we are called, we're not just called to serve in the church, we're called to serve outside of the church. We're called to honor God in every facet of our lives. We are called to express gratitude to God for the privilege of serving him with our lives. At the cross, we are called. As we look here in verse 12, the gospel leads to gratitude. We've been talking about what does it mean to be a healthy church and as we, we ask that question, we can just pause, ask it, and answer from this passage that a healthy church is a church or a place of worship and of gratitude. We must be a people of gratitude. When we hear the gospel, when we see the gospel at work in the lives of those around us in our own lives, that we respond with thanksgiving. We respond with worship, not just on Sunday mornings, but each and every day. The gospel leads to gratitude. It cannot lead us anywhere else. Next, in verses 13 and 14, we see another key part of the gospel, and that is this. The gospel transforms horror into beauty. The gospel transforms horror into beauty. Take a look at verses 13 and 14. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in my own belief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul begins this little discourse with gratitude. 
that's sparked by wonder and amazement that God would save him in spite of his past. Paul's life up to his conversion is one of animosity toward the church. Paul, in those days, known as Saul, was the primary persecutor of the church. The book of Acts tells us what Paul was like. Acts chapter 7 tells us that he oversaw and approved the execution of the first Christian to die for their faith, Stephen. Acts chapter 8 begins by telling us about Paul, then known as Saul, by saying this, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is an absolutely graphic description of a man who is ruthless, who is bent on the destruction of the church. If you're familiar with the book and the the musical Les Miserables, this man is Javert, who will stop at nothing to see Jean Valjean thrown in prison. A ruthless man who only knows the law. He's going house to house, searching for Christians, dragging them out of their houses to the temple prison. To put it bluntly, Paul is a religious terrorist. He is the predecessor of modern-day ISIS. He is overseeing the slaughter and the imprisonment of Christians. And he gets joy out of it. Acts chapter 9 tells us more about Saul when it says this. But Saul, still breathing threats, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for, from him four letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, or Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is a man who is so intent on the destruction of the church that he willingly travels 175 miles on foot to eradicate the church in Damascus. This phrase that we read here, that he is someone who is breathing threats and murders against the disciples. In Greek, when we look at this, it has this idea of carrying this this idea that his life is bound up in this mission. He breathes in and out the thought of murdering Christians. This is his source of life. He lives for this. This is a bloodlust that will not end until the church is destroyed. No wonder Paul describes himself in 1 Timothy decades later. No wonder he describes himself as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, as an insolent opponent to the church. The book of Acts was written by one of Paul's closest friends named Luke. They became good friends after Paul's conversion. Luke traveled with Paul on many of his missionary journeys. And I just wonder how haunting it must have been for Paul to share with Luke what he was like before Christ. How difficult it must have been for Paul to relive his wickedness. For Luke to see what his friend was once like. To hear of all the wickedness, the shame, the hatred that he felt for the church. That's almost mind-blowing. You see, Paul's hatred for the church was strong. But God's love for Paul was stronger. 
the horror that was Paul was transformed. He received mercy. He received grace. And that's the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church is that a healthy church doesn't try to pretend to be something it isn't. It's not a museum for saints, but it is a hospital for sinners. It doesn't doesn't glory in the sins of the past, but it also doesn't refuse to recognize them. It recognizes the sins of our past. It recognizes the horrors of our past, so that way we can rejoice in the beauty of the present. We can rejoice in the beauty of what God has done for us. The gospel transforms horror into beauty. Why? Because God is merciful and gracious. And his grace is unending. It is overflowing. It is abounding. Years ago, there was an artist who painted a a, a picture of Niagara Falls and submitted it to a uh, art exib- uh, exhibition. As they turned it in, they didn't have a name for it, and so the art exhibition uh, tried to be a little snarky, and they just decided to name it More to Follow because they, they didn't have the name. And the more you think about it, the more you realize that that's the perfect name for a painting of Niagara Falls. I did a little research on Niagara Falls this past week. 3,160 tons of water go over the falls every second. That means there are 273 million tons of water that go over the falls each and every day. There's always more water to follow. Thousands of years this has gone on, unending, and it's the perfect description of God's overflowing, abounding, unending grace. There is always more to follow. We can never run out of grace. God's grace is so overpowering like the falls. It is unending. It is abounding. And it is for us. You see, the beautiful thing about grace is it not only covers our sins, but also it enables us to trust God. Notice that Paul here in verse 14 mentions this faith that is found in Jesus Christ. Grace enables us to be able to trust God more, and it also enables us to love one another. The Bible makes it very clear time and time again that grace is the true focus of authentic Christian community. If we don't have grace, then we can't have true, authentic Christian community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you may be familiar with him. He was a a German pastor in uh, the middle of World War II who was eventually executed for his faith. He wrote a number of books, and and most of them focused on Christian community. There's this one quote that I thought was, was so beautiful from Bonhoeffer. He said this, Without Jesus, we would not know God. And without Jesus, we would not know our brother. The idea of Christian community is not possible without the grace that is offered us on the cross. If we want to be a healthy church, we must rejoice in the grace that we see at work in other people's lives. We must be a church of authentic Christian community, a church that loves one another and that has love empowered by the grace of God. The gospel turns horror into beauty. The next truth of the gospel that we see in this passage is this. The gospel is for the broken. The gospel is for the broken. Verse 15. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul right here in verse 15 gets to the heart of the gospel. The entire purpose of Jesus' incarnation is coming to earth. His earthly ministry is a rescue mission. And this rescue mission leads us to worship. It is astounding. Paul describes himself as the worst of sinners here. A lot of times we can get hung up on that. What does Paul mean by calling himself the worst of sinners? Is that something that we are supposed to emulate? That we're supposed to call ourselves the worst of sinners as well? Does Paul really believe that he's the worst of sinners? Surely there's someone else out there who's worse than him. Is this just hyperbole? Is he faking humility? What's going on when Paul calls himself here the worst of sinners? Well, it seems that Paul, remember he just relived his wickedness. He just relived what he was guilty of before the gospel. And then he comes to this passage and he's so overcome with disgust over his sin that he can't fathom anyone else being worse than him. People may, not, or people may be as bad as him, but they will never be worse than him. Because people have seen the evil of Paul's actions, but they haven't seen the evil of Paul's heart. The purpose for why he is doing all of these things. The infinite wickedness that dwells within Paul's heart. You see, the reality is Paul isn't concerned with the wickedness of others. He's not concerned in comparing himself to others. He looks at himself and he says, apart from Jesus, I am completely and utterly unworthy for the gospel. He recognizes his own sinfulness. Just like John Newton, he says, I am a great sinner and yet Christ is a great savior. And I think at the end of the day, we have to have the same mindset as Christians, if we want to truly understand the grace that is offered to us. Now, we don't have to trick ourselves into thinking that we are worse than anyone else on the face of the planet, that we have committed sins that are worse than anyone else out there. The reality is, if we look at our lives, there are probably some people that we can say, you know what, they did things that are a lot worse than what I have done. But Paul isn't focused on actions, Paul is focused on identity. He's not focused on specific sins. He's focused on his identity as a sinner. You see, part of salvation is understanding our great, vast need for Jesus. We may not have committed the worst sins in the book, but we know our hearts. We know what we are capable of. We may not have murdered someone, but we have certainly got angry with people. And Jesus tells us that when we are angry with others, we have committed murder in our hearts. We may not have committed adultery or lived a promiscuous lifestyle, but we have lusted after others. And Jesus tells us that if we lust after someone, then we have committed adultery in our hearts. We may not have ever publicly denied Jesus, but we have denied him with our actions. And in our heart, we would wish that we could follow the world and just forget this God thing. We are guilty in our hearts. We may not have committed the worst sins, but we can relate with Paul when he calls himself the worst of sinners. We can relate with Paul as he mourns his wickedness. So the real question for us this morning is if you've responded to the gospel. Have you responded to the gospel? We can recognize that Jesus came to save sinners. We can recognize that Jesus died on a cross. 
We can even recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. But have you ever responded to the gospel? Have you ever responded in faith that Jesus did not just die for sins, but he died for your sins? That Jesus doesn't just offer forgiveness, but he offers you forgiveness. All too often, if we look at American Christianity, at the church, there are people in the church who live their entire lives without actually responding to the gospel. The gospel is for the broken. Have you responded? And maybe not. Maybe as you hear that, you, you say, no, I, I, I haven't responded personally. I just urge you to make that decision today. To not tarry over that decision. We are not promised tomorrow. The gospel is for the broken. The gospel is for people like you and me. Next thing we see about the gospel is this. The gospel gives us hope for those outside the church. The gospel gives us hope for those outside the church. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul has had a lot of time to reflect on his salvation over the past two plus decades of becoming a Christian. And he realizes another purpose for God saving him. In addition to God saving him because God is a merciful and gracious God, because God loves him, there's another reason why God saves Paul. And that's to prove just how powerful God is. It is to prove to Paul and it is to prove to us that no one is too far from salvation. If God can save Paul, he can save anyone. Have you ever wondered or realized the same is true about yourself as well? It is no less a miracle for God to save you than it is for God to save a hardened criminal on death row. It is no more difficult for God. Anytime the dead are raised to life, it is a miracle. If you have a spouse or a sibling, a child, a parent, a friend, someone who has not responded to the idea of salvation, they've they've rejected Christ, it can be discouraging. It can weigh heavy on our hearts as it weighed heavy on Paul's heart. But Paul had a solution to address this despair. He looked at his own conversion. He looked at his own salvation, his own miracle. If God can save you, he can save anyone. This is a good check for us. If we think that it would be harder for God to save someone else, that unbelieving friend of yours, if you think it would be harder for God to save them than to save yourself, then you probably think too highly of yourself. Even worse, you might think that salvation is not a gift of grace completely undeserved, but instead you might even think, whether it's conscious or not, that you had a small part in that, that you get some of the credit for God saving you. But when you realize salvation is completely and utterly a gift of grace, unmerited, undeserved, solely from God, it gives us confidence. It gives us confidence because if God did it for us, then he can do it for anyone. If God can save us he can save anyone the gospel gives us hope for those who are outside the church fifth god the gospel leads us to worship the gospel leads us to worship verse 17 to the king of the ages immortal invisible the only god be honor and glory forever and ever amen 
Paul finishes his testimony, and as he's finishing his testimony, he can't help but burst into worship for what God has done in offering him salvation. The gospel is very personal. Paul is talking about his life and his own conversion, how God changed his life. The gospel is very personal about God saving you, raising you from the dead, offering you eternal life, forgiving you. And yet at the same time, it is very big. And it leads us to very big worship. Paul describes God in the biggest terms imaginable here. He calls him the king, the ruler of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the one to whom belongs honor and glory forever. As we talk about being a healthy church, as we talk about what does it mean to be a church, this is key for us. A right understanding of the gospel recognizes it is very personal, and yet at the same time, it leads to very big worship. We worship God in zeal. We worship God in reverence and thankfulness for his gift. The gospel leads to worship. Paul closes chapter 1 with a final warning about false teaching. If you remember last week, we were looking at some of the false teaching going on in Ephesus where Timothy was ministering. Paul closes with a, a few more words on that, and it just reminds us of the centrality of the gospel for us here at Crosswinds. In fact, it tells us the final truth about the gospel for us this morning. A healthy church perseveres in the gospel. A healthy church perseveres in the gospel. Hear these words from verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwrecks of the faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may, not, that they may learn to not blaspheme. Paul spends a few verses just glorying at the gospel, at the the wonder of salvation. And then he comes to a, a conclusion where he says, don't lose sight of it like these two have. Don't lose sight of the wonder of the gospel. We don't know anything else about Hymenaeus and Alexander. There are other people in the Bible mentioned by those names. We're not sure if they're the same people or not, but it's clear that they are guilty of this false teaching, that they have lost sight of the gospel. And so when Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan, what he's really saying is that leave them out of the church. But there's a purpose for doing that. He hopes that they will return. He hopes that they will come back. As a church, we must persevere in the gospel. We are never far away as a church from trusting our own hearts and our own efforts for salvation. We can lose the sight, the, the wonder of amazing grace. We can sing amazing grace until we're blue in the face. And yet, sometimes grace can look less than amazing to us because we lose sight of the glory of the gospel. If you look at the church in Ephesus, just a few decades after this, it's clear that they lost sight of the glory of the gospel. Jesus writes them a letter in the beginning of the book of Revelation, and it says that they've lost their first love. 
The religion, the faith of these people has just turned into a dead religion. The seeds of that are right here. We are never far away from losing the gospel. And so as a healthy church, we must persevere. We must cling to the gospel. We must hold on to it with awe-filled reverence and amazement for what God has done, not just for us, but for each and every one of us individually. Let us never lose the wonder of amazing grace. If God can save you and me, he can save anyone. You see, the gospel is for people like us. People who are broken and in need of a savior. And so this passage leads us to hope that no one is too far gone for God's grace. It leads us to humility. It reminds us that we were just as in need of God's grace as other people. And it leads us to a response. It leads us to reflect on our lives, on our past, on our sins. If you're a Christian, it leads you to marvel at the glory of what God has done for you. Of who you once were and what God has saved you from. Even as Christians, what we have done after our conversion. And yet God has still saved us from our sin. And if you're not a Christian, it gives us a chance to respond to salvation. Paul declares that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like Paul. Sinners like Jordan. Like the person sitting next to you. And like you. If you have never responded to the gospel, perhaps this morning is time. Perhaps God is calling you to respond because up until now, you've never realized how personal the gospel is, this offer of salvation. Perhaps up until now, you've never really thought that you needed a savior. Paul makes it abundantly clear otherwise that all of us are in need of a savior. All of us are in need of of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the glory of salvation, of what you have done for us. And Father, if there are any here this morning who do not know you, Lord, I pray even now that you would be at work in their hearts, convicting them, and yet also at the same time giving them hope We know that no sermon could convict without your spirit. No sermon can give hope and life without your spirit. And so, Father, we ask that you would be at work through your spirit this morning, turning hearts to you. For those of us who do know you, God, I pray that you would help us to refocus on the wonderful, glorious gift of salvation, of the grace that is unending, that washes over us like a waterfall. That's for each and every one of us here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.